I'm Jamil Smith, and this is Intersection. I have some news. This will be the last Intersection episode that I host for The New Republic. I'm moving on to a great new job opportunity, which I'll tell you more about at the end of the show. But I couldn't leave this space without adding one more presidential candidate to our series looking at the 2016 campaign through the lens of identity. That candidate? Hillary Clinton. On February 7th, the former Secretary of State went to Flint, Michigan to continue putting a spotlight on the water contamination disaster. She visited the poisoned residents of that majority black city less than one week before the primary in New Hampshire, where more than 90% of the locals are white. Here's part of what she said to the congregants at the House of Prayer Missionary Baptist Church in Flint that Sunday. This is not merely unacceptable or wrong, though it is both. What happened in Flint is immoral. The children of Flint are just as precious as the children of any other part of America. They are just as deserving of good health care, of good education, and of bright futures. But for a lot of black voters, there's an inherent distrust of all things Clinton. That all started with President Bill Clinton's awful welfare reform and his 1994 crime bill. It's a big part of what made mass incarceration the crisis that it is today. It's also a bill that the former first lady herself supported. And in 1996, two years after it became law, she said this about kids and gangs. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. So is Hillary going to be able to win over black voters or not? In the New Republic's January-February issue, Esteemed scholar Michael Eric Dyson argued that not only has Hillary Clinton come around on racial issues, but that she's uniquely qualified to address them. From that article, quote, If Hillary continues to learn from Black Lives Matter and in turn teaches them a thing or two, it may not be a match made in heaven. After all, that's what many said about Obama. But it may be a partnership that yields more action on race than we've had for far too long. Joining me now from Chicago, where he's on tour for his latest book, the Black Presidency, Barack Obama, and the Politics of Race in America, is Georgetown professor and New Republic contributing editor Michael Eric Dyson. Doc, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mike, you argue, among other things, quote, Hillary Clinton has exhibited a greater sophistication about race and, quote, increased sensitivity about how blackness is lived in our country. Could you tell us what you learned from the time you spent with her on the trail that led you to that conclusion? Well, I think that, look, it was easy to compare her evolution of thinking and her rather more sophisticated engagement with race versus, you know, what she did in 2008 when she was running for the presidency the first time around. Her argument that white workers needed to be represented signifying near the end of her campaign when she was bitterly disputing with Barack Obama about whether or not he could represent the interests of that constituency. So she was not above I think, exacerbating implicit racial tensions and in some instances, quite explicitly evoking race in a way that would appeal to working class and uh, other white people in America. So she's done a far better job of not giving in to such temptations to exploit, especially her whiteness in that way. And on the other hand, when I listen to many of her speeches, I hear a woman who's grappling with both the personal 
and existential dimensions of race and racism, as well as the structural impediments and features. So when I hung out with her on the trail, when I talked to her and saw her interact with black people and saw some of the speeches she was making, I was impressed uh, enough to believe that she was far more sophisticated and that she had put behind her some of the more troubling aspects of her public engagement with racial rhetoric. Now, can you detail then why you decided that she can be more effective for black Americans policy-wise than President Obama has been? Well, just because of the fact, uh, Jamil, that she can offer the policy without excuse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. You you know, President Obama is in a real catch-22. We all know that, you know, he's a really smart man and he's got the capacity to address uh, some substantive issues in, in, in imaginative fashion. But he was reticent to speak about race uh, for a good reason, obviously, because, you know, every time he spoke about race, he would be attacked. His poll numbers would dip. People would find them controversial and the like. Now, I'm hard pressed to discover what subject he could speak about that that would not be true for. (laughs) So (laughs) so the point is, if it's true for everything, why is it then that we make a special case for the president and exempting him from rigorous scrutiny or at least uh, moral concern when it comes to the issue of race. Because everything he talks about, whether it's ISIS, whether it's about guns, uh, whether it's about you know the automobile industry, whether it's about TARP money, whether it's about the recession. And Hillary Clinton has no such worries. Uh, she doesn't have to worry about the perception that she's hooking up her own people when she addresses the issue of race and when she puts forth public policy. Yeah, I want to get actually to that. I mean, I wrote about how Clinton did the most during the week before the Iowa caucuses to cater to the black vote, visiting my church in Philadelphia, Mother Bethel AME, uh, to speak with 50 black clergy members, 28 of whom later endorsed her. She also seized upon the Flint issue, as you mentioned, uh, successfully pushing for the March debate there, sending staffers to the city, and she sent herself there to send it this past right. Sunday. While she was there, she called upon Congress to approve $600 million in aid. But as The Guardian reported, there were a lot of folks there who were skeptical that she's just doing all this for the votes. What do you make of her efforts to secure that black firewall of voters in South Carolina and beyond and to highlight the environmental racism issue? So let me get this right. She's a politician. (laughs) Right. She's doing things to get black votes. Oh, my God. I can't believe that. I can't believe that a politician is doing something to get black votes. Because what do they want? Uh, Black uh, Cadillacs, uh, black cars, black houses. I think their votes would be appropriate. Um, And I'm glad somebody's working hard to get the black vote. I wish Obama might have worked harder to get the black vote. But when you don't have to work hard to get it, You don't work hard to keep it. And because Hillary Clinton has to work hard to get it, we have to make sure that she'll have to work hard to keep that black vote. And I think that's the right disposition. I think we're the ones out of whack. Those of us who would think, well, no, what we mean is there's some pandering going on. Well, given the fact that we've been dissed, chided, dismissed uh, and criticized, some pandering might be a good thing. Now, pander on, if you will, because we need the attention. The people whose backs are against the wall, whose water essentially is being poisoned, need the attention of the federal government. And Hillary Clinton has done not a small uh, amount of things to bring attention to that and to address it in a serious and sustained fashion. I feel like there are certain folks who just feel like, you know, what can a politician do for me? What can a politician actually get done? And I get that a lot of folks in Flint are skeptical and they want, you know, her to bring a bunch of water filters as opposed to bringing attention. What is the inherent value of that attention as you see it? 
That's a great point. But see, the attention itself can bring a lot more water. But water may not bring attention. <laughs> see, so political attention is a scarce commodity of communities that are underrepresented. And by Hillary Clinton bringing that attention to that city, a lot more than water can come there. Environmentalists, scientists, people who are concerned about what's happening to this population of black people who are poor, uh, of American citizens who are locked out of the political process, uh, essentially. I mean, that kind of attention can do a lot more good uh, than people may recognize. And as a result of that, just trying to turn her into a carrier of, you know, Fiji water is not going to, uh, to name one brand. I don't want to uh, pick one above the right. other. Yeah, no, we're not sponsored. <laughs> we ain't sponsored, but if they want to throw me, okay. So, so the reality is that, that Hillary Clinton is doing what we think politicians ought to do, shine a spotlight on arenas that deserve consideration and attention that have not historically received them or in the midst of a crisis have not been benefited by such attention. So I think that's ultimately the consequence of her bringing attention to this trauma. City. Now, in this campaign, we've also seen Bernie Sanders address not just the Flint crisis by calling for the resignation of the governor of Michigan, but also address issues of racial justice, albeit after being pressured by black liberation activists as Clinton was. Uh, what do you make of his appeal for political revolution, as he calls it, and where black folks fit into that? Ain't this a trip? Obama was buffeted, beat down and assaulted because he's what? A socialist. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And now Bernie Sanders is running front and center as a Democratic socialist. If that is not one of the most glaring examples that Democrats are unwilling to recognize of white privilege. See, we used to say white privilege. Well, we'll talk about the Republicans and the other side of the aisle. And look, I'm glad Bernie Sanders is running as a Democratic socialist. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking now about the fact that isn't it fundamentally contradictory for so many Americans to be so obsessed with whether or not Obama was a communist or socialist, which is ridiculous, which is political poppycock. Um, but it would it would be the death of him. It would be the death of his career, the death of his aspirations. You already got one deficit, you black, and now you're going to be a socialist, too. That would have been horrible. But the very thing that was used against Obama is now in many ways uh, being celebrated among many people. Oh, we love Bernie because he's not like Obama and the rest of these politicians. He's a progressive and he's a socialist. He has, again, that's where his white privilege comes in, in an interesting and, and provocative fashion. Beyond that, you know, I'm glad to see him in this race and I'm glad to see him pushing Hillary Clinton and her pushing back on him. It, it is better when we have a, a hugely and hotly contested race so that people have to compete with each other, trip over each other, in, in terms of doing good for our community after eight years, well, seven years where we've been told that this man is black and he can't say too much and he can't do too much. He has to be mostly mum. He's a racial procrastinator. He's a racial, you know, he's racially silent. In the midst of all that, I must say, though, Jamil, mm -hmm. it feels much better to be actively pursued and engaged and courted than taken for granted uh, by a political figure. Lastly, I can't let you go without asking you about your book. Can you tell us what you examine in it and how you approach the subjects of President Obama and race? Yes, sir. Well, I talk about uh, the president and race, how it's been used against him, how it's been deployed to try to blacken him in uh, unprincipled fashion, how Obama has been slow to the uptake in regard to addressing issues of race, how he's been pushed in principled fashion uh, to engage the issue 
and what are some of his achievements and failures. And so I take full measure of his presidency by looking at all of those situations and by examining uh, what the consequence is to black America of having uh, the first black president. Michael, appreciate you coming on the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me, my brother. Now, to talk more about the Democratic primary from an intersectional approach, I have three fabulous guests joining me today in the studio. First, there's Rebecca Traister, my former colleague at The New Republic and a writer at New York Magazine. She wrote a book on Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign called Big Girls Don't Cry. She also has a new book about to be released entitled All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. Great to have you here, Rebecca. Great to be here. I'm also joined by Dorian Warren, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute here in New York and my former MSNBC colleague. He's taught at the University of Chicago and Columbia University. Welcome, Dorian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, we also have Bryce Covert here with us. Bryce is the economic policy editor at Think Progress and a contributor to The Nation. She wrote recently for The New York Times about the conflict between the two approaches we're seeing in the Democratic race. Hey, Bryce. Hi, thanks for having me. Bryce, I'll start with you. You wrote that the big difference between the Sanders and Clinton campaigns is, quote, between working the system and smashing it. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that, you know, there are policy distinctions between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Certainly they are having a very high profile argument over a lot of them right now, particularly as people are voting in primaries. And it's not that those are not important. But by and large, the two of them agree on really important, broad things. So, for example, they both think we should have a much higher minimum wage. They think we should have paid family leave. They think that college should be more affordable. Child care should be more affordable. All of these things are actually quite notable. You know, they were not always sort of Democratic Party fodder. They are also, of course, in huge contrast to what's going on on the Republican side. The real difference that I see between them is not so much on these small sort of nuanced, if important, policy details. It's on how they would accomplish things once they were in office. And I think there's actually a really, really big difference between the two of them. Um, On the one hand, you have Hillary Clinton, who I just see as such a pragmatist. I mean, she says it herself. I'm a progressive, but a progressive who gets things done. Uh, What can I do given the givens. Bernie Sanders is all about political revolution. He says, you know, screw that. I'm going to sort of topple this system that doesn't work. I'm not going to work within it. I'm just going to find a way to create a new one. I have my skepticism that that latter track can really happen. Um, But I really think that that's what people, when they're voting in the primaries, are deciding between. How are we going to change things, given the way Congress is, given the electoral map? Now, those labels, pragmatist, you know, revolutionary, they played a big role in the Democratic primary so far, of course. And Dorian, I mean, Sanders is, quote unquote, radical and progressive, Democratic socialist, and Clinton is moderate, liberal, depending upon who you ask. Do these labels mean anything to voters, though? Yes, but unfortunately, I think some of those labels have been, to use the term, bastardized. I have a problem, actually, with Bernie Sanders saying the term political revolution because it, it it strips it of any real meaning of the true term. Similar to democratic social, he's actually more of a social democrat than a democratic socialist. What's the difference so, between those? So, I mean, so this is my shorthand way of putting it. So social democrats 
basically fuse markets and capitalism with social protections and society. So think Denmark, for instance, versus a democratic socialist state, which is a step towards socialism. So think a socialist state like Cuba, for instance, right? But with more more democracy than Cuba as we've known it in the past. So I I think Bernie Sanders, when he uses the term democratic socialist, I don't think it's quite accurate. And when he talks about political revolution – that's not the political revolution I know about. It's not the French Revolution. It's not. It's not any kind of revolution in the history of the world that we've seen, where you top, you literally topple systems and create new systems from the ashes. But when I hear him talk about the revolution, and when I hear him answer as he does now, when people say, "Wait, how are you going to have? How are you going to do this?" One of the things that's begun to strike me over and over again is he always says, "Oh, I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it." And the other day in a debate, he actually used this phrase: "Mitch McConnell's going to look out his window, and there you're going to be." And I'm, you know, all the the, the army of Pete Bernie's army is going to be out there staging <laughs> the revolution that they're responsible for. And this is this is beginning to bug me actually. Because, Same here. Because one of the things that has always made Bernie Sanders the politician and the presidential candidate so inspiring, so important to the conversation on the left is that he has expressed really in a very direct and useful way anger at what is broken Mm -hmm. and at the inequities that are so systemically in place. And and that is that powered the first half of this campaign was him saying our system is broken and he is right. There are those at the top who have all this power and then there are all the rest of us at the bottom who don't have the power, right? That is true and crucial. But what he's saying now is he's beginning to turn it so he's making promises, right? It's gone from I'm angry to I'm going to make the world better. But how are you going to make the world better? You. And reliant on this is this idea that the you, the masses who have been cut out of the broken system, are responsible for showing up outside Mitch McConnell's window. And so I guess if we don't have this revolution, it's probably on you guys. I mean, there's a sense of making people who he has given such voice to how disempowered they are, but then suggesting that it's their responsibility to show up and and stage this revolution. People who he's done such a good job of explaining exactly the power that they lack. But yet, somehow, they're going to find time in their days and find a way to get to, you know, outside Mitch McConnell's window. And I think it's a really, it frustrates me because I'm like, how exactly are the people you're speaking to supposed to get themselves to the point where they're overthrowing the, the system and the government that you've already explained is so set up against them? Right. I also think that this is the difference between Bernie Sanders, the, the messenger, and Bernie Sanders, the president. Mm-hmm. Because in many ways, I mean, I agree with him that things are broken. Me too. And we need yeah. to change them. And, you know, I, in fact, the pragmatist in me is the, is the sad part that feels like I want to see change and we just have to get it done with what we've got going because I don't see the path to revolution. But I do think if I see a path, it's not via a president. It's via local and state elections. It's via, you know, smaller grassroots. Fight for 15 is an, is an incredible example of people, actually these disempowered people making real change, but that didn't happen because Obama was in office and said, go forth. It right. happened because people organized and right. they pushed from the bottom up. And it's it's also interesting to me. You mentioned that this comes at state and local elections. You need to get different kinds of politicians in. One of the other sort of hesitancies I have about this idea that we're going to you know change the system entirely is that Sanders is running at this point on his own behalf. 
he's not raising money for the Democratic Party because he's not in the Democratic Party, right? But that also means that this revolution is his supporters aren't extending their support economically or with their energies to the other races that are so crucial to actually changing a balance of power in this country. And that's a that's a real problem. And just one of the things I want to do to just pivot back to Clinton a little bit, the things that she's putting forth, the pragmatism, the this, this saying like, you know, progressives aren't progressives without progress. I mean, is that <laughs> something that's actually going to sell to a, a you know, an electorate that's, in, in, you know, fundamentally disgusted with how government works these days. It's interesting how these dynamics play out with regard in part to identity, which is not at all what this is entirely about, but it does play a role, right? Yes. So that if you look at 2008, who was the radical candidate on the Democratic side? It was John Edwards. Yep. Okay. John Edwards was the first candidate in a long time who talked about poverty, who talked about two Americas. And John Edwards could afford to be more radical in his approach, could afford to be angrier in his approach because he was a white guy running against a black man and a white woman. Neither of those two figures, each of whom was radical by dint of their identity, right? Because they were just by being in their own bodies. They were an expression of disruption of a white male power structure. And you could see Obama does not get angry. Obama cannot get angry. Obama cannot yell. Hillary Clinton cannot yell. We saw what happened when she yelled at the debate the other night. And the next day in the New York Times, it was written up as she was tense and angry and sensitive, right? Yeah. Bernie Sanders spends, I mean, he yells when he gets up in the morning, right? <laughs> Who gets it worst are black women. You can see what happened with Michelle Obama, whose passion on a campaign trail in 2008 was punished by pictures of her wagging a finger on the front of the National Review behind the headline, Mrs. Grievance. What makes Michelle Obama so angry, right? The angry black woman comes into play. There are real limitations on how lots of people can express themselves politically, right? Mm -hmm. And so this has set up against Hillary in a number of ways. It's, and I'm not arguing here that she's a true radical who is, you know, her radical light is being hit under a bushel because of her gender identity. But I am saying that a system selects for a candidate, a first woman candidate, quite a bit like Clinton, who is a pragmatist. That is the role that women have often been called on to play, the fixer, the pragmatist. You know, you can make all kinds of larger arguments about there are so many things put in their way. They have to learn how to get around stuff and how to do stuff practically. But she's set up in this election to a degree in a way that she was in the last one to not be able to be the one shouting about revolution right? right and it's a harder sell shouting about revolution especially in these broken times is a much more appealing thing i would say it's easy almost you know it, well it, it is you know it's, it's it's a lot easier to just say like well we need to tear everything apart and erect stuff and we need to you know build something new from that without really specifying exactly how you're going to do that I also feel like the response to what Rebecca just said, which is something that I agree with, is, well, what about Elizabeth Warren? And I just sort of want to bring her up mm. and talk about that because it is true that Elizabeth Warren, as a woman, does get away uh, in the roles that she's played to some extent with talking about, I don't know if I would call it revolution, but talking about yeah, how the system is angry. broken, yes. being angry, and and she gets away with it. But that said, I mean, you have to have looked at her Senate run to see how she was treated. The second a woman goes from saying these things to running for office, right. 
Everything changes. And it's true with Clinton, too. When she's secretary of state, people love texts from Hillary and people love her sunglasses. She's and very whatever. cool. And she's, she's a tough cool. lady and a badass. And then she starts running for office and she's a bitch and she's caustic and she's tense and she's, you know, boring. And, and you can't relate to her. And I think the exact same thing. Well, it would be different because Elizabeth Warren is a different person. But a similar kind of thing would play out with her. I completely agree about that. When she ran for Senate, in in Massachusetts, the most left-leaning state in this country, right? right? She was in a terrifyingly tight race against Scott Brown, who's a pretty hated guy, okay? she That was not like the, the state rallied around Elizabeth Warren. She was written about critically through her entire campaign against Scott Brown in precisely the same terms that Clinton is, which is bizarre because they really are different kinds of politicians. But she was written off as wooden, inauthentic. She's terrible on the stump. She doesn't connect with people. She's elite. She's a Harvard University professor. All these related charges. Were she to run for president, she would also get a lot of what Bernie gets, except I think amplified, right? She'd be too radical, too left, too threatening. She would also, I pretty much guarantee, get hit a lot harder than Bernie Sanders has been so far for her lack of foreign policy experience, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a woman with no foreign policy experience, forget it, right? Right. Uh, You know, so I think I'm also always dismayed that the sentence you hear most often if you talk about gender in the presidency is, but Elizabeth Warren. And I just don't know how to say any more clearly that like, you don't get out of a sexism charge by being able to think of one chick who you would like to vote for for president. Like, hey, I can think of one lady that I would totally support for president. Therefore, I can't be a sexist. Well, we've been dealing with this for the last eight years with you know, the one black guy that right. they've been able to vote for. Right, exactly. Right. You know, exactly. I, we voted for him. He's there. What right. are you complaining about? Right, exactly. Uh, Dorian, I mean, one other label that is attached to Clinton, of course, is feminism. She hasn't been talking all that much about being a woman in this campaign. Why do you think that might be from a political strategy standpoint. Why hasn't she been talking about her gender identity? Yeah. Right? Well, I think part of it is that she embodies it, right? So there's sort of it's an unspoken descriptive representation. So in political theory, we distinguish between substantive and descriptive representation, and often we conflate the two. So we assume substantive representation follows from descriptive representation. This is why um, some of your friends, Jamil, can get really (laughs) upset with President Obama, for instance, for not doing more perceivably on racial justice issues, Yes, even though he sort of embodies Body's descriptive representation of black America. So I think the same is from a strategic point of view with Secretary of State Clinton. She embodies, right, this in the same way Obama embodied the racial frontier. She embodies this gender frontier of this, or breaking the glass ceiling, if you will, that, that needs no explanation on the, on the one hand. Mm-hmm. Now, it also happens to be the case that I think all the Democrats, she and Bernie, line up pretty, you know, they're progressives on gender issues, broadly speaking, right? So that there's not much room there. Now we could talk about the difference between their supporters, but in terms of them as candidates, there's not much distance in terms of their positions on, say, gender equity. But to, you know, strategically, why would she play that up at this point? Now, some of her surrogates are, but why would she, why would she need to play that up from a strategic point of view when it's assumed already? Now, Rebecca, one of the issues that is, you know, not really being discussed and you've written about is abortion. Hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you to speak on that, too. But I know you had another point. Well, no, I think that because I covered her in 2008, she really didn't talk about her gender in 2008. And she's actually done it a lot more this time. I think she's been encouraged, in fact, to center it a little bit more. But the other thing she is, in fact, 
and I think you could really credit her with being more radical than Bernie on this, this and guns, right? She has centered abortion and centered Hyde in a way that I mm. never thought I would hear any politician, much less a female politician, much less Hillary Clinton, who has a shaky record talking about abortion, as many Democrats do. She has been talking about her support for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment, which is central to economic inequality. Hyde is the amendment that prevents federal money being spent through insurance companies, through federally funded insurance companies exactly. for providing abortion services, right? So it basically cuts off America's poorest women, poorest families from getting the full range of reproductive care, right? It is yeah. absolutely central to inequality in this country. And it has been a third rail issue until like 10 seconds ago, right? When Barbara Lee, to give credit, it's not like Hillary invented the repeal of Hyde thing. And and I really do want to give some background. Like Hillary Clinton has had a very shaky reputation. I mean, she's always voted the right way on reproductive rights. She's always been a strong when it comes to actual policy. She's been very much in the right camp when it comes to reproductive rights. But she, like many Democrats, have kept really safe distance from actually – centering them or being bold on them and she's she's often credited with being the architect of her the the phrase in her husband's administration safe legal and rare which reproductive rights activists rightly deplore because it casts abortion as this kind of thing you want to avoid which is not right it isn't right right Uh, you you want an abortion you you should be able to get an abortion right safe legal accessible and exactly as frequent as they need to be and then in 2005 along with a lot of other democrats including john Kerry, she began to talk about abortion as a sort of tragic choice she referred to it as a tragic choice. So she does not have this like record as a firebrand when it comes to reproductive rights. So within the past year, there has been some movement um, spurred on largely by California's wonderful Barbara Lee, who put forward a, a bill in the House called the Each Woman Act that would basically overturn Hyde. Um, so th- that's been a little bit in the air. It has, you know, 109 or so co-sponsors. But to see Hillary has now been pressed on this and, in fact, has started speaking directly and in detail about the connection with reproductive rights access, with abortion access and economic inequality, racism, classism. She is drawing the lines between these things. And it's incredibly radical and thrilling, if you care about this stuff, to hear this being discussed in the context of a presidential campaign, right? And I would say that the chief difference, she and Bernie both have sterling voting records when it comes to reproductive rights. There is a real difference, and it also comes with how you position racial issues, right, and racial injustice. Bernie has a classic economically left view, where if you fix the money, everything else sort of works itself out, right? This is a major difference, even though they have totally comparable great records on women's issues. I actually give Bernie Sanders credit, though, on the racial justice front, because I watched him respond horribly at Netroots to the movement for black lives protesters. And then a few months later, he came out with this, what I think is still a very radical, innovative thing. No one talks about the five types of violence affecting black people Mm -hmm. in America. And it's like political violence, legal violence, physical violence, economic violence. But this is like out of a graduate school seminar. To like, it's like a conceptual framework. That, now, could he articulate that in a speech <laughs> or a campaign rally? I'm not sure. Right. But on the website, it's yeah. actually a really innovative way to think about racial injustice I through agree. these different types of violence that no one is talking – no one is really talking about what his vision is in terms of racial justice. It's actually a missed opportunity, I think. Right. And I mean the framework is really, really something to look at. But at the same time, can you articulate that into policy? And also within that economic framework that Sanders is presenting, Bryce, I wanted to ask you like – 
black poverty and white poverty are different things. Right. And so how are both Clinton and Sanders approaching those different solutions? They're very, very different solutions. Well, so and I will not profess to be in the middle of this debate, but there's a very strong debate really sort of anchored on one side by Ta-Nehisi Coates and then on the other side by a bunch of other folks um, over Sanders' response on reparations, which he basically said, I'm paraphrasing him, basically said, that's not feasible. It's just not politically possible, which is probably true, but also like that you can say that about basically anything else that he's espousing. So the question is, why do you have such a broad imagination of what's possible when it comes to economic issues and not when it comes to something much more racialized like reparations? And it gets to the heart of this issue, which is that it it is different. There, there's sort of like a Venn diagram, right, of like poverty and black people. And there's a big overlap, but there is something about black poverty that is very different than white poverty. You give everybody more money and white people still have more money. White people still have a faster chance to rise. They have much more economic mobility. Black people are so much more likely to fall into poverty, even if they aren't born into poverty. It's just very different. And I would also say that, you know, there are parts of the patriarchy that make being a woman in this country very different, even if you're leveling economic playing fields. And so I think the challenge that people have had with Bernie's approach is that sort of as Rebecca says, you fix the economic problems and those are huge and important, but you don't fix everything and you can't fix it all just through economics alone. And I wouldn't say that I feel that Hillary Clinton is, you know, talking all about this brilliantly, but I do think she centered gender and race from the beginning in her, to her platform in a way that didn't just say, well, I'm just going to fix the economics and all else will follow. She talks about being a woman. She talks about all, all that comes with that. She also talks about – she was talking about mass incarceration in May. It was like out the gate. She was talking about this stuff. And it's a bit of a, an about face for her. But it's important to see her doing that right at the bat and not in response to people – pushing on her yeah i mean dorian is a big about face when you think about the stuff that she was saying in 1994 and stuff in 96 about the super predators i mean can you speak a little bit to that and (laughs) oh that's such a setup (laughs) i mean we hey we have to be fair i mean the thing is is a lot of black folks especially black folks are really really reticent to jump on the hillary train because of the stuff that she and bill did in the 90s and i don't blame them uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm conflicted about this, to be honest, Jamil, because, mm-hmm. it, you know, it the, the things they did and said in the mid 90s, absolutely despicable, whether it's the crime bill, whether it's welfare reform, there's no question. And then the question becomes, though, at that point, is there any room for people to repent? Is there mm-hmm. any room for forgiveness if you have come around and you could show me the logic of your evolution on an issue? I, I just I, I think it's a little unfair to hope someone Fully, it doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable, right. but to suggest that they're at the exact same place they were 20 years ago on policy, it seems just a little too easy an argument to make. And I think we should give people the room to say, I was wrong about this. Here is why. And then here is my hopefully radical proposal to actually undo the damage inflicted on certain communities and to empower them. And I think we should at least give her that chance. I mean, I, in no way would I ever make an attempt to ex- excuse any of that stuff. Of course. But I do have to say that it's slightly frustrating after two decades of seeing politicians like Al Gore, John Kerry, Joe Biden, our current <laughs> vice president, <laughs> who wrote the crime bill. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. After 
seeing none of these guys being made to pay for their errors. They're very real errors. These are people who voted for welfare reform. These are people who literally wrote the crime bill. We can talk about Joe Biden and Anita Hill. Like, uh, we, right? yeah, I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> we probably yeah. should. Yeah. But it, no, Joe Biden isn't the issue, right? I don't, I don't need to go out after him unnecessarily. It is slightly frustrating for me to see all of the payment for these truly despicable errors. Absolutely. Somehow come down on the head of this person who, like, as added insult, was married to the guy. Like, she wasn't even doing the voting or she the didn't writing, vote for right? It. right? She did make the comment. Bernie she Sanders made. Did, <laughs> well, she supported it, and and that's a mistake yes. that she should answer for. Exactly. But she didn't vote. And she for did it. make she the super. She it. made the super predators comment. She yeah. she was out there pumping up her husband's administration. Now, those are there's also all kinds of complex history about the roles of wives and what they are supposed to be doing and she had to play a role. I'm not saying she was forced to. I I think she probably believed this stuff and it is disgusting and she should be made to answer for it, but it is just frustrating to me that her role as wifely support yeah. she's going to be the one who pays the piper after long political careers and, you know, broad Democratic support for a lot of the actual politicians who put this stuff into practice. I mean, Dorian, I mean, one one of the things I mean, a lot of people who are skeptical say that it's sort of her trying to get into political heaven now mm-hmm. where she's going to Flint and now demanding six hundred million dollars in government funding, calling upon Congress to approve that funding. What's your take on how she has not only you know sought to own that issue, but also highlight you know what I think is a pretty intersectional issue, which is environmental racism? I think it's actually a great move for her, and I think it's a more. I mean, she even said this is a moral issue, right? So she's framing it not as a, a narrow strategic political issue, but as a, an issue requiring some moral urgency on behalf of the country, which is absolutely right. And that's just Flinton's only the tip of the iceberg, right? As which we now know there are millions of pipes, <laughs> right, in this mm-hmm. country that are that are lead based, that are you know lead infused, so to speak. But I want to back up for a second, Jamil, to your question because I think it ties in a few of what we've been talking about. And that is historical context, as you said, Rebecca, is is everything. And for for both Bernie and Hillary Clinton, you can't look at them outside of a social movement context. And so if you go back to the 90s and think about what were the social and political forces that were active then, there – I mean you looked around. There weren't a lot of active social movements on the left, right? Right. I remember when Hillary Clinton was running for the Senate – and was against driver's license for undocumented immigrants. And now she has one of the most progressive policies on comprehensive immigration reform. Why? Well, there was a movement that happened between, you know, 2000 yeah. and 2015, 16. There's a movement for black lives. There, there is, there was something called Occupy Wall Street, which is why now Bernie can, can, he can surf, right? On the wave created by that insurgency. So I think we're in a different movement context, which we have to remember always shapes how politicians respond to issues. And ideally, we want to shape how politicians Absolutely. respond. To, a politician's job is to represent the priorities of their constituents, right? And it's interesting to me that, for example, you know, Bernie and I—I I give him credit for this. Bernie has done a very good job of responding to criticism, right? We saw it with the after net roots. He he did start to his campaign started to think about how to address race. I don't think he's ever fully integrated it into his favorite message, which is about economic inequality. But like, as you say, they've done some pretty terrific radical thinking about how to put it on the website, right? And we see that and we're like, it's very easy to congratulate him on that. When Hillary 
Hillary is apparently a, a never-ending contortionist who's always lying to us and double. There's never this sense of like, wow, she's actually listened to criticism and is beginning to respond to it. There's simply not that narrative that ever gets applied to her, and yet it gets applied very appreciatively to him. I want to switch a little bit to the generational divide between young and old feminists. What are they looking for? What are young feminists looking for in a candidate as opposed to, say, you know, the Gloria Steinem's of the world and Madeleine Albright's of the world? I don't think it's ever smart to tell young people what they should think in this context. So to elaborate on what's going on, Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright has basically been giving the message that... A, young feminists are going for Sanders because they, like, don't understand the trials of their elders. And B, if you're a real feminist, you support the woman uh, because she's a woman. And that is just an empty argument that gets no one anywhere. I, I think the young people that are in favor of Sanders, men and women alike, are in favor of him because of this revolution message, because they feel like things are so screwed up because the system is so broken. They've borne the brunt of a lot of it. So I think writing off that anger and that experience as, you know, some sort of idealistic fantasy that's just infantile or for in young women's case, you don't understand feminism or you don't appreciate feminism or, you know, you don't love women or whatever it is, is uh, it's just completely unfair to how I, how I think quite aware young people are of what's going on. Now, I think not to say it all goes back to this argument that I made that is about idealism versus pragmatism, but I think maybe this gender split is about that. I mean, and I see myself as, like I said, sort of slightly uh, older in this scenario in that I watched Obama's presidency and that was extremely formative for me. You know, he his was the first candidacy I really got excited about. I really got involved in. I will admit that I... I projected all that stuff onto him that was probably incredibly unfair to project onto him about hope and change and idealism and what was possible. And then I watched the first four years of his presidency. Things happen, but a lot of compromises made that I didn't think he should make and a lot of bad choices he made that I thought were just stupid. And there was a lot of frustration along the way that I I think has really informed at least me and perhaps other people who had that same experience wanting a pragmatist in office. So I indeed wrote a ton about the generational storyline, especially within feminism, that unfolded in 2008, which, if you want to know what it was like, it's exactly like what it is now. Okay, there's like, it is, it, Bryce is completely right, it is Groundhog Day. We are having the same conversations most of the same characters this weekend, which also included misstatements by Bill Clinton, Gloria Steinem. It was like it was like the special guest stars had returned for a reunion episode of <laughs> the two, Super Friends are back. Two thousand eight, screwing up Hillary Clinton's campaign. Wah! Anyway, so it has been really surreal. Now, as for the generational difference, this is how generational tension, especially when it comes to social progress, works. It's how it works in every context. It's how it works in every movement. You can look at the LGBT movement and see generational tension around everything from the word gay to the trans movement. To, I mean, you see it within the civil rights movement. A lot of this was actually in play around the Obama candidacy in 2008. Tensions between older activists and worldviews about expressing anger or not expressing anger about radicalism, you know. This is actually healthy, okay? Here's how generational tension is supposed to work within social movements and also in life. Young people are supposed to be energetic, idealistic, driven to change the world, 
right? That is what actually pushes us toward changing the world. They cannot be told that what they're doing is something that the generations before them have already done, (laughs) or it would dampen their energy and enthusiasm, (laughs) and that would be bad, okay? By the same token... Older people are meant to have a view that is that is shaped more by their own experiences. And these things bump into each other all the time, right? It makes absolute sense that young people who do not have long memories, really even probably before the Obama administration, or any many of them don't have solid memories of the Obama administration, right, would respond to a candidate who is seems to be offering – and in some cases promising things like free healthcare, free college, like, right, no, right, you should go for that. And in fact, if you are a young person, and this is not about being dumb, it's not about being naive, it is literally about being a person whose political adulthood is relatively new. But it's okay. And they don't mean young women aren't feminists. They don't mean young women don't care about having a female president. There is an impulse on the part of the media since feminism has existed. There has been a desire to talk about how young women think it's uncool. There is, <laughs> there is a media investment, a cultural and social investment in making feminism a thing that is old, over, dowdy, out of fashion, you know, unappealing in every way. One of the best ways that you do that is talk about how young women don't care about it. By the way, I also want to say that Hillary Clinton herself, one of the reasons that Steinem's unfortunate comments are so distressing Mm -hmm. is that one of the great things that Hillary learned this time around is how to address the generational divide in a super classy way. What she's been saying in the debates when asked about like basically a version of a question Hillary is asked like every day, which is why do people hate you? Her response when it comes to why do young women not support you has been so smart. She very calmly and very believably says, well, look, I'm thrilled that they're excited about Bernie Sanders and I hope to earn their support. This is a terrific line. And she's really like been disciplined about pulling it off. And that's one of the reasons that it is really too bad that Gloria Steinem said what she said on Bill Maher. And Madeleine Albright also, I think it's a little nutty because Madeleine Albright says that thing about there's a place in hell for women who don't support each other. She says that thing like 40 times a day for the past. <laughs> Literally, you guys know it's yeah, on, no, it's yeah, on right. a Starbucks yeah. cup. You know that? Yeah, like right. that, It says that and right. then Madeleine Albright, right? So the idea that this was invented for the Hillary 2016 campaign or that Hillary somehow, like that's just put Madeleine Albright on a stage and she's going to say that line about women going to hell, <laughs> right? So those comments have not been helpful in part because they've muddied what has been, I think, a very disciplined and, and quite a warm message about the political engagement of young women. I can't wait for the unblackening to happen, to use Larry Wilmore's term, so that we can move from a post-racial America to a post-gender America. Elect yeah. <laughs> Clinton and the next day sexism will be gone because that's how it worked with Obama. Yeah. On that note, <laughs> that hopeful note, open change, folks. Uh, Rebecca, Dorian, and Bryce, thank you all for coming in. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So about that news I was telling you about earlier. By the time you hear this, I will have begun a new job as a senior national correspondent for MTV News. It is an opportunity that I'm enthusiastic about, but I'm sad to leave my colleagues here at The New Republic. In particular, my producer, Michaela Lafrac, who has become a true partner for me on this podcast. I've been a media producer, so I know how arduous the work can be. It will be difficult for me to articulate just how much the many hours she has sacrificed, as well as her prodigious insight and direction, have meant to me 
and to this magazine. She is truly incomparable. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Jamil. You're going to make me cry. Wait, who let you on this podcast? I snuck in. But I did want to say a heartfelt thank you for everything you have done and for putting the show out into the world. It's been amazing to be a part of. I also wanted to jump in here and make a quick plug. The New Republic has two other great podcasts that you can listen to. First, there's Grierson and Leach, a show about the movies. The two hosts, Tim Grierson and Will Leach, review new movies. They talk about old favorites and generally crack each other up. It's a hilarious show. There's also Primary Concerns, a new podcast hosted by politics writer Brian Boitler down in D.C. And each show, he invites a journalist to discuss what's new in the 2016 elections. Grierson and Leach and Primary Concerns are both available now on SoundCloud and on iTunes and NewRepublic.com. So I hope you check them out. Okay, time to go back to my producer cave. Back to you, Jamil. To borrow a line from one of my favorite sci-fi films, the future is not set with intersection. The only thing I can say definitively is that this is the last episode of the show for now. I appreciate you all for subscribing, listening, and dialoguing with Michaela and I as we have attempted to put something good and useful into the media universe. I hope that our insight and that of our guests have helped you to embrace intersectionality in your lives and your work, no matter what it is. It's essential to what we do and to who we all are. Thank you for being a part of this. Intersection, as I mentioned earlier, is produced by Michaela LaFrac. We record at Argo Studios, supervised by the incredibly talented Paul West. Our music is by Julian Villard. Please continue following us on Twitter at IntersectionTNR and on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Jamil Smith. Be sure to stay subscribed to Intersection and all other New Republic podcasts. Thanks again for listening.